all the information that they don't want you to know is hidden in the footnotes. Today, I sit down with Brownstone Institute fellow Debbie Lerman to discuss her research into U.S. government documents and the origin of America's pandemic and mass vaccination policies. All of a sudden, there was a new square on the org chart that said policy, and it said National Security Council. And underneath that, very interestingly, it said WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction. According to Lerman's research, in a sharp break from official pandemic preparedness plans, the National Security Council was put in charge of the pandemic response in 2020 instead of Health and Human Services. Trump derangement syndrome segued perfectly into what I call COVID derangement syndrome. Moderna and BioNTech now have dozens of mRNA vaccine trials going on, which I think is just astonishing. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Debbie Lerman, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Debbie, you've done some really fascinating research from my perspective. You discovered that the U.S. pandemic response was actually led in terms of policy by the National Security Council, not HHS, as a lot of us had assumed for a long time. And we're going to get into that, okay? But before we go there, I mean, your background isn't researching the government. You have a very, so tell me a little bit about how you came to be doing this work. Okay, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you're right. I don't have the background of somebody who uh, is an investigative journalist or who is reading through uh, government documents uh, and trying to figure out um, how different agencies are doing different things. I don't even know what those, ac I didn't used to know what any of those acronyms meant. Uh, but when March 2020 came along, um, I felt like everything that I thought I knew and everything that I thought I believed in uh, kind of went away and I, I got really um, a little crazy and I didn't know what to do. Most people uh, where I come from were all very much uh, afraid of the virus and in favor of the sort of any measures that the government suggested that we needed to take against it. And I read to ready to take those measures. Basically. They were absolutely yeah. ready and happy. And whenever I questioned it, 
they, they asked me if I was a Trumpist. Mm -hmm. That really got to me because I am the, I'm a socialist liberal Democrat. I was. <laughs> and they know that. My friends and my family know that. I've always been that and never voted for a Republican. Didn't like Trump at all. But I also didn't think that uh, everything that Trump said, we had to do the opposite. And I also didn't think that if you look at evidence and facts, that that has anything to do with Trump. There was such a disconnect w between what I was saying and what their reaction was. That's what scared me because I said, I'm talking to you about facts and you're coming back to me with some kind of either political or ideological uh, response. So there's a disconnect between reality as I see it and the reason that you think you're doing things or I'm doing things. And so um, that really, really disturbed me. So maybe just tell me a little, just a little bit about your background, because I do think it's relevant. Like, I don't think you were, you know, completely not in a place to do some really good in-depth research here, right? Just tell me a little bit about your educational background oh, and sure. your work and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in terms of education, um, I have an undergraduate degree from Harvard in English, and my whole career was in writing. So yes, I am a writer, and I did do a lot of medical writing, but I knew how to read medical studies. Mm. And I also knew how to translate complicated medical information and scientific information for a lay audience. Um, and I knew how to look at numbers. And so the first thing I did when they talked about the pandemic was look at the numbers. Why? I want to know how scary it is for me. I want to know, am I going to get it? And if I get it, am I going to get sick and die? I mean, I think that's what everybody wants to know uh, first thing. So I looked at the numbers. And I looked at the numbers coming out of Italy, let's say, uh, at the beginning when everybody was terrified. And, you know, so let's say 20,000 people in Italy died. And I said, okay, well, there's 60 million people in Italy. Uh, and 20,000 people died or 20,000 people got sick or whatever. They were talking about tens of thousands of people that they were worried about. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, in a 60 million person country, even 20,000 people getting sick or dying is not a reason to do anything at all except increase the capacity of the hospitals, find ways to treat them if you can, you know. And so there just didn't seem to me to be a big emergency. And it seemed like the emergency was being fabricated. Mm. Uh, and it also seemed to me that the people who were falling for it were everybody that I used to <laughs> identify with. So. Um, and, and they were telling me that because I didn't, that I was somehow ideologically, uh, politically um, wrong, you know, that I was not in their tribe anymore. So what was that like? It was horrible. It was really horrible uh, because I felt lonely, I felt isolated, and um, I don't do social media. So I don't do Twitter, I don't do Facebook. Um, and I guess a lot of people have told me that they've gone on the social media platforms or that when they had the same experience that I did, they went and they found like-minded people. Um, I think that those platforms are pretty destructive to democracy, <laughs> which is a totally different topic, but which is why I'm not on them. Um, so it took me a while to find the like-minded people, and what I did was I followed the science.
the real, not the science. I followed actual numbers in science. The first week of the pandemic, so March 2020 in the middle, I was talking to a good friend and explaining why if this was an extremely contagious pathogen and everybody was getting it and nobody was dying, that means it has a very low fatality rate, infection fatality rate. And everybody was saying 10%, 5%, 2%. They were throwing away all, all these percentages, right? Um, she sent me the John Ioannidis article, March 17th, 2020, in Stat Magazine. I have read that article. I read it every day for two years. <laughs> because that article said we are basing our response to the pandemic on no knowledge, on no, uh, we don't understand what's happening, we don't have the information, and our response is not proportional to what's happening. That's basically what he said. Now, he didn't say only 10,000 people will die, which is how people have distorted what he said. He didn't say he knew how many people were going to die. But he said, it, within the range of possibility of how many people are going to die, nothing that we're doing makes sense. Mm. And that's how I felt. So it gave you a little bit of a sense of sanity at this point. Just right? that article. And then that article led me to another scientist. So I was following only scientists at the time. And so when I, I started following Ioannidis online, and then he led me to other scientists like Jay Bhattacharya and other scientists at Stanford, where he worked, and then he also led me to a guy named Vinay Prasad, who is another scientist um, from UCSF, who was giving um, podcasts and uh, YouTube videos about saying the truth, basically. Saying what, what was actually happening and what should we be doing and what should we not be doing. Because what I was mostly terrified about was what we were doing that I thought was extremely, extremely harmful. And I started writing articles about how the first article I wrote in March 2020 was, the virus doesn't scare me, our response does. Mm. And I sent it to newspapers as an op-ed. <laughs> Obviously, nobody um, looked at it or responded. And, I wrote a f and I, then I sent it to friends. And I said, don't you think this is crazy? I mean, and, and here I'm telling you and I'm explaining the science, I'm explaining the numbers, I'm explaining why what we're doing is, is not good and probably very, very harmful. And that's when I would get the response like, are you a Trumpist or what's wrong with you or, you know, have you completely changed your politics or something like that? Or they would just say, well, people are dying. Mm -hmm. And so if I would say to somebody, you know that children don't die of COVID, um, the response that I got was so extreme and people would scream at me or, or get angry at me. So I just stopped, I stopped doing that. And I stopped writing those articles because nobody wanted to read them. When I found Brownstone, the first article that I sent to Brownstone was a letter that I had written to an art institution. I live in Philadelphia, which I had been affiliated with for a long time, where they were still requiring masks and they had vaccine mandates, which I thought, um, now I got the first two vaccines because um, I was so naive. <laughs> and uh, even though I knew our whole response was wrong, for some reason, which I can't even fathom right now, probably I had succumbed to some of the propaganda, um, I thought, okay, I'll get those vaccines and everything will go back to normal. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, but that was the messaging. 
That was the that messaging. That was the messaging. If we vaccinate 70, I forget what it was, 70%, something. It changed a lot. Right. It did change a lot. But then we'll be fine. Right. It was, it was ubiquitous. Right. And so um, I probably wouldn't do it again, but I did get the two uh, first vaccines, and then, I re and then nothing changed. And then everybody still had to wear masks. And then, you know, we started with all of the variants or whatever. Who ever heard of a variant? I mean, then everybody started getting even crazier. Um, and so um, I wrote a letter to this organization and I said, you know, you have to stop with the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates. And because I come from a very liberal democratic background, I know what is important in that world. And I said, you know what? Um, and this is also true. I mean, I wasn't saying anything that was false, but I was using the levers that I knew would work or that I thought might work in that world. And I said, it's a racist policy. The vaccines, the vaccine mandates are a racist policy because, and I gave the numbers because I always use numbers, um, the uptake in um, communities of color is 30% in Philadelphia and the uptake in, white, in the white community is 80%. So when you have a vaccine mandate, you're actually excluding most of the communities that you are trying to bring in with your you know, diversity and inclusion efforts. They immediately dropped the vaccine mandate. And I didn't succeed with the masks because I couldn't figure out a way to say that masks were racist. But um, I sent that letter to Brownstone, and I said, listen, I use this, you know, maybe other people can use it. And Jeffrey Tucker from Brownstone sent me, uh, five minutes after I sent it, he sent me a one-word email, and he said, okay. And I think that changed my life. Because after he said okay to that article, I started writing all the articles that I had been writing in March 2020, updated, now that I knew, two years later, how bad everything had been. I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. Um, and he started publishing the articles. Now, I was writing articles more from a philosophical perspective or sort of like an overall overarching perspective, like what happened? What was the propaganda? What were the politics? Because I think politics played such a big role, at least in this country for sure. And in each country, the politics played it in a, in a slightly different way. Um, and I wrote a big article about the, the, the COVID catastrophe, and what were the things that came together, the, the um, catastrophic COVID convergence is what it was called. And I said there were four things that came together. Mm, right, I know, I, and I remember this piece, so but please go on, this is, this is very interesting. Yeah. And so um, it was uh, panic, politics, propaganda, and profits. So the four Ps. So, Panic, everybody was uh, in fear. And what I realized as I was working on this article, because I worked on it for a really long time to make sure that I got all of the different components and that I explained it in a coherent way. Um, I said, by the time I finished the, the article, I realized that it had to have been, I think, a lab leak. Because I said, there's no way there could have been that much panic in the population if it didn't come from above, like if there wasn't like a really powerful group of people or organizations that were really panicked.
And I said, I think they, the only reason I can think of that they were panicked because SARS-CoV-2 isn't really that scary. Um, it spreads really fast, but it doesn't kill a lot of people. Um, the only thing I can think of is that they knew it had escaped from a lab. And so in my naive state at the time, I thought that, okay, so they panicked. Even though in the real world it wasn't killing a lot of people, they thought it was a potential bioweapon, so it could kill a lot of people. They panicked. They said, okay, we're throwing out all of our pandemic preparedness plans. We're going to just lock everything down, get a vaccine, and then everything will be fine. That's the panic part. Then we had the politics, which in this country played right into it because everybody who um, was opposed to Trump, just anything that Trump said about the pandemic, like masks don't work, we're all going to wear masks forever, doesn't affect children, we're going to close our schools forever. You know, So there was kind of this like... Do the opposite. Do the opposite. You know, I'm just going to comment very briefly. Sure. I thought a, a few people told me this, including you know former administra Trump administration officials that I've worked with or I've interviewed. Um, they just said, "Yeah, this is. I think this is what they're doing. Like, we'll just whatever we wanted to do, they would just do the opposite." And I said, "That is patently insane. Like, I just can't believe. I, I refuse. I refuse to believe. I would. I said, I refuse to believe your assertion here." And it probably, it took me another year since I first heard that. Really? I was like, you know, I think this is true, but that is, that is so preposterous. I think you didn't realize it because you weren't in the community of the people who were doing it. I was with, I was living there mm -hmm. and I saw it happening in real time. Mm -hmm. So I saw that when uh, Trump said, children don't die of COVID, or he said things, sometimes he, the way he phrased them wasn't exactly right scientifically or whatever, but he got the gist of it. Um, and again, I'm not a Trump supporter and I don't love Trump, but he said things that were right. So he said, kids aren't affected by COVID. That's why whenever I said to somebody, you understand that kids don't die of COVID, right? Because I knew the numbers of deaths and the numbers of hospitalizations. Yeah. I mean, I knew all the numbers. That's why they got so upset, because he had said that, and now I was repeating something that Trump said, and God forbid, you know, they would agree with anything that Trump did. So just did. before we get to the other two, so do you, you agree that this so-called Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing? Yes. Trump derangement syndrome segued perfectly into what I call COVID derangement syndrome. Okay. So... Trump derangement syndrome, which the way I define Trump derangement syndrome is that people got so emotionally attached and in fact their identity became attached to hating Trump. So it was no longer rational. So it no longer mattered what he said. And so nobody, so people who had Trump derangement, so the way I define it is if you have Trump derangement syndrome, you're no longer able to evaluate what he says rationally. So you can't evaluate it rationally because you have an emotional response, you have an identity-based response, you have a lot invested in it in terms of how you feel about yourself and how you define yourself. And that was so perfect because it led right into COVID derangement syndrome, which is the exact same thing, which is my identity as a good person, as a person who cares about my community, as a person who takes care of other people, um, is dependent on my following every single thing that I'm told. I'm gonna wear 10 masks forever until, you know, and I'm gonna wear them everywhere, even outside. What you're told by, by the anointed. 
people. Exactly. Right. But exactly. please, but continue. By the anointed people yeah. who are saying the opposite of Trump, mm -hmm. right? So the anointed people in the minds of the, of the COVIDly deranged are the people who are saying the opposite of Trump. So like, I can't do anything that Trump says, so I'm going to do everything religiously that the people who are saying the opposite are telling me to do. So, if, so even if opening schools by Easter, I mean, I was so hopeful when I heard Trump say, we're going to open everything by Easter. I don't know if you remember that statement, but that statement was so hopeful to me. And I said to my husband, I just can't believe this, but not only is Trump right, <laughs> but, you know, it, he, it, we have to do what he says. You know, and um, the opposition was so fierce because the Trump derangement syndrome, which had turned into the COVID derangement syndrome, was, are you kidding me? We can't open by any, at any time, basically. I mean, we're never, we can't open at all, ever, until we get the, I don't even know. They didn't really have an endpoint. I mean, maybe, maybe until we get the vaccine or until we flatten the curve or until we, the hospitals have a certain number or don't have a certain number. I mean, I never really understood. There never really was a good endpoint. That was one of the problems. Um, and so the politics played right. So that Trump derangement syndrome, which was absolutely real, turned into COVID derangement syndrome, which I think is what prevented some people who might have been able to see through some of the stuff or who might have been wanting to open the schools, because I think children were one of the areas where people woke up a little bit earlier than some other things. Um, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because Trump said we should do it. So I, you know, before we continue, oh yeah, you, you were gonna tell me your other two P's, but it's just the power of, I mean, repetition of information, propaganda, uh, indoctrinate, it, it's unbelievably, I mean, this, is, this has been one of my lessons of this whole time period, but you know, just talking to you here, it's really unbelievable in a way. It's unbelievable. It's so powerful and scary. So the third P is propaganda. <laughs> and the propaganda that was happening, I mean, was so strong and so powerful and overwhelming. And it played on the Trump derangement syndrome and it played on you know, people's fears and, and sort of identity politics and um, sort of performative um, acts that they could do to show, you know, performative virtue and stuff like that, and, um, or virtue signaling. Uh, and the propaganda just played right into all of that. And it worked. It worked. I didn't think in my lifetime that I would be a witness or a subject. I mean, we read about it in history, right? World War II. Communist Russia, you know, places where a whole population was subjected to an enormous amount of propaganda and succumbed, or most, a lot of the population succumbed, right. and it was bad. And so I thought, we learned those lessons. We know. We know not to do that. We know that when somebody tells us something that doesn't make any sense and that's harmful to other people, like our children, <laughs> that we're not going to do it. We're going to say no, or we're going to actually like think independently. I, I'm still flabbergasted by it, but I understand better how strong the force of the propaganda was. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fourth thing, which is the profits, is that once all of that happened, 
and all of the profit-making, you know, companies, the drug make, the uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies, the mask makers, the test makers. Um, I mean, there was and the um, social media companies. So the the shift in wealth was just mind-boggling. It was trillions of dollars in upward transfer. It, I mean, the biggest wealth transfer in history by some probably order of magnitude or something. I, I don't know, but. Right. Yeah. So after that, I suddenly realized after that article, I started researching. So the propaganda really got to me, and I started looking at who was doing it and why. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, my whole um, structure of panic uh, and politics and propaganda kind of and profits kind of got inverted because I realized that the propaganda, the profits, and the panic all happened at the same time. Because when I wrote that first article, I got some really interesting responses from people who worked in the uh, National Defense, uh, Department of Defense, uh, National Defense, uh, in various uh, associated industries and research. Somebody wrote to me who had done research for the Department of Defense, not on biodefense, on something else. But he said, you know, you're a little naive. Uh, when you say that there was panic from above because it was a lab leak or whatever, I don't think they were scared. I don't think they were panicked. I think they saw it as an opportunity. Mm. And that, a light bulb went on. I said, you know, that's so interesting. Like, that actually makes a lot more sense. Because if there was a whole system out there or a whole network of for-profit uh, companies government organizations um, and other interested entities that had all kinds of things that they wanted to do if there were to be a pandemic and then a pandemic happened. And I'm not saying that they caused it. Some people would tell you they did it on purpose because they wanted to you know, activate all of their um, plans. I think it was a leak. I don't even think it matters whether it was or wasn't because when it happened, when there was the pandemic, I no longer think it was panic from above. Right now, I think that the profits and the propaganda were all part of a plan that had already been in place, and it was just waiting for, for SARS-CoV-2 to happen. Well, I'm, I'm just going to throw out one more thing you know, before, we, before we continue. It could have been both, right? It could have been because you know, having been in the China space for some years, <laughs> right? There's this, under, there's this understanding, and certainly in this in the Trump administration, and this was evidenced by you know the the, the rhetoric coming from the State Department under uh, Secretary Pompeo, for example, right? That basically the CCP is ready to do anything, capable of anything. There's no limit, right? So you, you have to distrust and verify. Is that was the line? So you know you see something coming out of there. It looks like it might be a leak. My God, what could this be? I think there's a very legitimate case for panic. Or not panic, but for but for being a concern. You know, deep, deep concern and some kind of strong response. Now, there could also be a system at the same time that's ready to take advantage of that because they're they can make hand over fist money in this kind of a context, right? right. So I, I'm just saying, like it could be both. It could be. Yeah. I think in this case, and I'll agree with you that the CCP um, is a power to be reckoned with and not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually don't trust any information that they have put out about the virus, okay? Where it came from, where it didn't come from, 
uh, when it started, when the first cases were detected, I don't trust any of that. But I also know that we were involved in the development of um, gain-of-function uh, viruses. So we were looking at, some people like to say we were trying to get ahead of pandemics so that we would know what the viruses were going to evolve into so that we could have developed vaccines ahead of time. doesn't make a lot of sense because we have no idea what viruses are going to develop into in nature. And I've talked to people who have worked on that kind of research who say doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense if you think that um, either both uh, your enemies are going to try to develop bioweapons based on gain-of-function technology or, and or you want to develop that kind of a capability. So if you want to develop that kind of a capability and you want to know what your potential enemies are trying to develop, one of the ways you might do that, and I don't know for a fact, and I don't know if you have talked to Andrew Huff, um, but somebody who worked for EcoHealth Alliance, who was working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, they were working on that kind of thing. And I don't think it was just the Chinese. I don't think it was just the CCP. I think it was the CCP and a bunch of Western countries, biodefense, um, organizations were working together. So Germany was involved in um, Wuhan, not at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but another institute in Wuhan that was looking at stuff like that. Brownstone has reported on that. Um, and France was one of the countries that actually uh, created the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and the United States was funding research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So a lot of things were happening around there that make me think that everyone was in it together. So you found that it was in fact the National Security Council that was, that took control of pandemic policy, as opposed to what you would expect in a normal situation, which most of us thought that it would be HHS that would be running the show. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I don't know if you want to know the origin story of how I got to that research, because as I said, I wrote the article that was really very general and it was very high level analysis of the panic and the propaganda and all of that. I wasn't intending to look at, like, to get into the minutia of what's the policy, what was the pandemic policy before COVID, what did it become during COVID, who was running it, who were the people. I really wasn't interested in the particular people who were involved mm -hmm. until uh, Jeffrey Tucker at Brownstone said, I need somebody to uh, review Deborah Burks's book about COVID. And I do anything that Jeffrey says. So I said, okay. <laughs> and I took the book and I started reading it. And I, uh, after 50 pages, um, told my husband, something really, really shady is going on here. It's hard for me to explain, but I'm a literature major. I don't read books for like what the words say. I read it for what they mean and the subtext. And the subtext of what she was saying was, I want you to believe something and I'm covering something up. And that's how it came across to me. Um, in the intro to her book, she says, I really cared about Africa. That's all I really cared about. Um, but I got a call from my friend, Matt Pottinger, uh, who is the National Security Advisor to the President on China, the Assistant National Security Advisor. And he told me to come to the White House. Actually, it was his wife who I used to work with in the 80s. And I was like, none of this makes sense. 
Nobody uh, who is an assistant national security advisor to the President of the United States asks his wife who she worked with in the 80s, and she tells him, oh, I worked with Deborah Birx, and she was great, and you should call her because she should really run the pandemic response. I don't know. I mean, maybe that sounds like it makes sense to some people, but when I read that, I, was, I said, that makes no sense at all. Um, also, why is the assistant national security advisor to the president for China or for Asia, but mainly China, doing it has anything to do with the pandemic? Well, I, why? I, I know why. I can I, I mean, can tell we you. know why. No, no but I, I can tell you why. Why? Because he, he's someone who actually understands the CCP threat deeply. I mean, I like I, I know the guy. He he he, you know, he understands it very well. So I, he would be someone who would be thinking, "Oh my God, what is this?" Right. But right. would he be the one who you would turn to, to lead or choose a leader for a public health pandemic response? You see what I'm saying? Like that's where the disconnect was. Like I wasn't worried about the national. This is a national security advisor caring about COVID. Yeah, sure. I mean, he has to care about our relationship with China. Why didn't they tell us about it? Were they covering it up? You know, when did they know about it? All of that. Why is he telling us that Fauci or Collins or whoever um, shouldn't be leading the government task force, but this person who he's going to bring over, um, why is that part of our public health response to a pandemic? That's where my mind went. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. Because I was trying to figure out, all I was trying to figure out was why was our response so bad? Why did we make so many mistakes? Or intentional or unintentional, I don't know. Um, and all of a sudden I see that, like, the person who is now put in charge of the task force, right, is somebody who has no experience with anything except for AIDS. She did AIDS research in the 80s, and then she was an AIDS ambassador you know, for a few decades after that in Africa. No experience, no knowledge. I mean, there are so many people, John Ionides, Ray, uh, you know, Bhattach Jay Bhattacharya, who have been doing this all their lives. They've been studying epidemiology and we're putting her in charge of a public health task force. I didn't understand it. That's why I started looking at the documents. And once I started looking at the documents, I found the closest thing that we have to a COVID pandemic response plan. Now, I think as a democracy and as, as a country where we pay taxes for our government to be prepared for pandemics and all of that, that we have the right to know what the plan that our government has, what plan they're implementing. Now, I looked at all the plans that we had Okay, so we had a whole bunch of plans that were public health plans. We had a whole bunch of plans that were biodefense plans, that were plans that were um, started mostly after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks um, in preparation for a bioterror attack, which means like somebody trying to release a virus that might kill a lot of people, right? So we had all those plans, and then we also had the public health plans. And I read all the plans, and I read everything about like what we were supposed to be doing. The public health plans all said, you know, there's no proof that masks work, you know, if we're talking about um, PPEs, right, um, or non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, um, that we don't, universal masking doesn't work, testing and quarantining doesn't work, 
with a virus. It's like these are like really fundamental things that everybody knows who's an epidemiologist or a virologist. Um, because when you have an airborne respiratory virus that is very quickly transmitted, you can't test and quarantine. You can test and quarantine when there's three cases. Once it's in the population, which it already was in January, January 2020, it was already everywhere and we knew it. I mean, there are maps that I know of on the internet that show that in January it was in a bunch of countries and a bunch of states. If it's in a bunch of countries and a bunch of states, you cannot do testing and quarantining. So anyway, so th that's what those plans said. So the plan said that we had, they said we should, you know, the states should be prepared to respond depending on the case, you know, how many cases there are, but mostly the hospitalizations, how serious it is. Um, we need to increase hospital capacity. Not we need to shut down to flatten the curve so that too many people won't go to the hospital, that's not part of any pandemic preparedness plan. The pandemic preparedness plan says we need to quickly step up and increase hospital capacity so that we don't have to shut everything down and flatten the curve. Um, and so those are all things that are in every plan that I read that the government had. Um, and who's in charge? Like you said, Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services is a big umbrella agency. Underneath Health and Human Services is the CDC, is the NIH, and is the NIAID, which is Fauci's organization. So that's the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases, NIH is National Institutes of Health, CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They're supposed to be in charge. Um, all of a sudden, Deborah Burks comes in, and they say, oh, she's just another public health person. She's going to be in charge now. but..." Um, that's, you know, Fauci and Collins and all the people are still, are still uh, you know, responsible and everybody thinks they're the ones who are making the plan. Uh, I found the document. It's called PANCAP A. That was the plan which in 2018 they put together and this is the government's plan. So, so when I said that we're taxpayers and we're paying our government to have plans, we also are paying to be able to see what those plans are, right? You cannot find these plans on the internet or anywhere. It's really, really hard to find. Now, I think that's really weird, right? We have a public health crisis, we have a pandemic, and we don't even have a piece of paper or a, you know, a site from our government saying, this is our plan. We don't have a plan. Um, so I find these plans, and there's a uh, um, March 13th version of the pandemic um, crisis plan. And on March 13th, 2020, you can see that they updated the 2018 plan for pandemic preparedness, which says all the things that I said. We have to be able to increase capacity. We have uh, hospital capacity. We have to be able to, um, you know, each state has to respond based on how things are happening because there's an awareness in pandemic planning that it's not all happening at the same time everywhere. Right? Because the virus is spreading in different places at different times. So some place, like Utah or Texas, might not have any cases for a few months, while New York is experiencing like a huge you know, explosion of cases. Um, in that case, New York should be responding in a certain way, and Utah or Texas should be responding in a completely different way. That's all in the plans. Uh, and so, but the March 13th, 2020 version of the plan 
has a few little inserted things that say that, so there's an org chart that's in all the plans that says the CDC is doing this, the NIH is doing this, the Health and Human Services is the lead federal agency. Now the lead federal agency is the, agency, the government agency that's designated as the agency in charge. That means they make the policy, they decide what to do, when to do, you know, how to do. Um, they get help from other agencies that are designated to help in different areas. So FEMA helps with, you know, on the ground help to different states that need the help at certain times. Um, you know, the Department of Agriculture helps if it's affecting that. The Department of Transportation helps if it's affecting, you know, each department is helping, but HHS is in charge. This document said, all of a sudden, there was a new square on the org chart that said, policy. And it said, National Security Council. And underneath that, very interestingly, it said, WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction. And why, first of all, why is the National Security Council suddenly in charge of pandemic policy? Second of all, why does it say weapons of mass destruction? Like what does this virus have to do with weapons of mass destruction? And if it does have to do with weapons of mass destruction, why aren't we being told about it? So that to me was like mind boggling, even more mind boggling in this document, not in this document, but this, so this document has a few footnotes and um, insertions. And that's where you find the information I've realized when, and I've heard this before, but I didn't realize it until I started researching. All the information that they don't want you to know is hidden in the footnotes. And the footnote said that the National Security Council had a plan, but it wasn't included in this document. This was the old document. This was the CDC NIH document that they had just kind of inserted a few things into. Um, and so then I started looking on the internet for what their plan, what was their plan. Mm -hmm. And then I found out President Trump did something that was not reported anywhere. And what he did was he declared a, um, does it, he invoked the Stafford Act, never heard of it before. <laughs> The Stafford Act is um, used when there's a disaster, like a hurricane or a flood, to, to uh, release funds for FEMA. So it gives FEMA the ability to, and, it's, and it allows the governor to declare a state of emergency or whatever. Like it, it, it starts the whole cascade of things that you need in order to help people when there's a national disaster. There's a whole list of natural disasters that FEMA's in charge of. Pandemic is not one of them. Okay, public health is not on the list of the things that they do. President Trump invoked the Stafford Act in all 50 states simultaneously. Never been done before. It means that, now this is in the public record, it's not like I had to FOIA any of these documents, but I had to dig. Mm -hmm. um, what that means is that he's saying, or I don't think it was him, I mean the National Security Council who's now in charge of policy is saying, there is now a disaster in all 50 states at the same time. So this is exactly the opposite of what the actual pandemic preparedness document says. If you're doing it in the public health way, all 50 states are completely different, right? Uniform blanket disaster decreed on the entire country and on that very same day, and I found this through 
um, Senate hearings on what went wrong during our initial pandemic response, and also some FEMA documents from the Inspector General who was in, um, commenting on what they did wrong or what went wrong. Um, on March 18, 2020, HHS was taken off as lead agency, so lead federal agency for pandemic response. That, to me, was more significant even than just the National Security Council taking over the policy. Because you might say, like you said, Matt Pottinger, he knows the danger from, you know, China, this is also a national security issue. We have to worry about our relationships internationally. We have to worry about how this is going to impact our national security on a broader level, not just public health, right? You might say that. But if the HHS, which is supposed to be the lead federal agency for pandemic response, isn't even in charge of anything, not communications, not implementation of policy, Who's in charge? FEMA. And FEMA <laughs> were like a deer in headlights. So nobody told them this was going to happen. A few weeks before this happened, there's a document, an internal document saying, you know, we should be prepared, you know, if certain states need our help, but, you know, there's nothing right now that we really need to worry about, right? Um, so they were totally unprepared. Uh, and all of a sudden, they're in charge, and there's another, a new org chart in one of the Inspector General's um, documents that shows that everything that the CDC and the NIH and HHS were supposed to do as lead federal agency for pandemic response, now FEMA had to do. No preparation, no documents, no history of doing anything like that. Um, and they, in their testimony to the um, Senate committee or whatever it was, said, we shouldn't have been put in that position. We shouldn't have been put in that position. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Nobody in that hearing asked why. Why was HHS taken off and why were you put in? Now FEMA is a, an agency that is under the Department of Homeland Security, okay? And the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Agency are in charge of um, keeping us safe from wars and terrorism and things that threaten our national security. They're not in charge of keeping us healthy or safe from threats to our health. And so when I found that out and when I realized that nobody else, it's, I, I didn't have to FOIA any of those documents. I just found them digging and digging and digging uh, and, and nobody else knew or was reporting about it. And so I didn't sleep for a few days, and I thought, this is so really crazy. Um, and it got published on Brownstone. And I thought, well, clearly, you know, somebody's gonna see this, and, you know, it's gonna be news, <laughs> you know, like people are gonna care. Mm -mm. No. Nobody cared. And so I'm, I'm still, um, I'm just really shocked. Uh, and so to me, what that meant was that the response was not a public health response. It was a national security response. And if it's a national security response, that means that all of those principles of public health, so the number one principle of public health is to not panic, 
keep everybody calm, solve the problem or help the people who are affected by the pandemic or whatever public health problem you're trying to solve and let everybody else live their life. That's, how, that's what it is. And we did the opposite. We shut everything down. We threw everything out that we knew about masks not working, about um, testing and quarantining when you have an airborne respiratory virus that's already spread everywhere. Case numbers, all of a sudden case numbers became the metric of how worried we should be about this virus. Case numbers mean absolutely nothing because if everybody gets COVID and nobody dies, then we could have you know, 330 million cases and we wouldn't care at all. So the fact that they were constantly talking about the cases in order to foment panic, also, I mean, all of those things had nothing to do with public health. And so what I realized was we had been subjected to some kind of weird national defense um, exercise, or maybe they really were worried and because they thought it was a bioweapon, but it wasn't a public health response. And, be, and all they cared about was shutting everything down until we had the vaccine. And what I call it is quarantine until vaccine. And in order to get everybody to quarantine, because who's gonna agree to that? They had to panic. So, so this is why my whole um, sort of paradigm from the beginning got shifted. So the panic wasn't from the top. The panic was induced by the propaganda. Um, the people who induced the panic with the propaganda also were interested in the profits and in everything that had to do with the development of the vaccines. Um, there had been on the, so like I told you, I was looking at the uh, public health documents for, for pandemic preparedness and the biodefense documents. Uh, in the biodefense documents, the main thing that they care about, and again, this isn't even like assigning like some kind of blame, like they had some kind of like really dark evil purpose. Everybody was doing their job. The public health people got pushed out. Um, the national security people said, okay, we're taking over because whatever reason, yeah. right? Um, and our plan is we're gonna keep everybody as separate as possible so that no, you know, as few people as possible get it until we have the vaccines. And for the past 20 years, we've been developing this amazing technology that we've been wanting to try called mRNA technology. And we, we think that that's the best way to deliver a medical countermeasure against a bioweapon. And medical countermeasures are different from vaccines in the sense that first of all, they, the first and foremost, they're developed in order to protect the troops um, and people on the front lines who might be attacked with a bioweapon. Second of all, they have to be done really fast Fauci in a document in like 2003 said, we, in 20 years, we wanna go from bug to drug in 24 hours. Bug to drug, fantasy. He had billions and billions of dollars though that were devoted to that research. Then, into, and then DARPA and all kinds of other organizations that work on medical countermeasures for the national security agencies for the Department of Defense, um, they had, I don't know, I think $5 billion a year devoted to this stuff. 
And so then in 2017, when they were starting to work on um, DNA and, RNA and mRNA kinds of platforms, they said, okay, it's not 24 hours bug to bug, uh, bug to drug, it's 60 days. We want a platform that in 60 days, no matter what is thrown at us, we're going to be able to develop a countermeasure. That's 2017. 2020 comes along, they're nowhere near getting anything out. Nothing that they've ever developed has ever worked. People who have been working on MRNA technology for a really long time have found that they haven't been able to develop any safe products because in order to deliver the mRNA to the bot, to the cells, you have to do all kinds of things to it that make it really toxic. And so in all the um, studies that had happened thus far, and there were two main companies that were working on mRNA, Moderna, which was working closely with Fauci, and BioNTech in Germany. They had developed them, and they were working on them. BioNTech was working mainly on, on cancer, and um, Moderna was working mainly on these biodefense kinds of things. And um, now, I, so those are all the facts that I know. Theory. <laughs> I think that um, in January or even December, when they knew that there was this virus, and they already had this, I think they already had the genetic sequence, um, they decided that this mRNA technology that they really wanted to work and that they had been working on and putting billions and billions of dollars into for a decade or two, this was the chance. And what's the chance? The chance is now we don't have to go through the whole boring, annoying, long, uh, you know, regulatory process. Because if you think you have a platform that works and that's going to deliver a miraculous way to protect the troops and also the population from anything, basically, in 60 days, you don't want to wait 10 or 20 years with all the clinical trials and you know all the possibilities of failure to finally have something that works. You think, and, and I'm giving them a lot of credit here, because I'm saying that they really wanted this to work, um, that you can bypass all that regulatory stuff. If you could just bypass it, you could show everybody that it really works. And so I think, and this is where the profits come in, but it's also where the, I think an honest desire to have these platforms work also comes in. Um, I think it was predetermined theory, not fact. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm researching it. I think that they decided from the beginning that the mRNA technologies were going to work, no matter what. Okay, Unless everybody who got the shot dropped dead immediately, it was going to be a success. And so they got Pfizer to take over BioNTech. BioNTech had never been working on anything that had to do with viruses. I mean, they say they were doing some flu research, but 99% of their research was on cancer. Pfizer took over BioNTech, Moderna and um, Fauci, you know, Moderna and Fauci and NIAID were already working together. Um, they, once they decided that it was a medical countermeasure and that we were uh, developing it in opposition to a bioweapon, it no longer had to go through any of the regulatory um, steps that a vaccine would have to go through. A vaccine absolutely cannot be developed safely and effectively in less than, some people say 10 years, some people say five years. It's years 
Um, but if it's a medical countermeasure, then you can um, present it as a, um, the, the process of manufacturing it is called a demonstration. And the actual thing that you're manufacturing is a prototype. And as a prototype, it doesn't have to go through anything at all. And so basically, um, and I think that you know um, Sasha Ladipova? Do you know who Sasha Ladipova is? Yeah. Okay, amazing research. So she sort of combined my research on the fact that it was a national security response and that the DOD, the Department of Defense, was responsible for the vaccine research. And that the Department of Defense being responsible for the vaccine research is fact and it's in the public record. So there were army generals who were in charge of warp speed, not doctors, not researchers, not public health people. Um, and so it was run as a military operation. And because of it being in the military framework and in the um, medical countermeasure framework as opposed to the vaccine public health framework, they were able to bypass everything. They were able to, I mean, manufacturing hundreds of millions of vaccines when you have no, I mean, there wasn't any infrastructure for that. There wasn't anything that was prepared for that or set up for that. Definitely not by Moderna. Definitely not by BioNTech. Pfizer, you know, was able to scale up, and they also had a lot of vendors and a lot of, you know, subcontractors that they used for it. Um, all of a sudden, in less than a year, you're able to manufacture millions and millions of vaccine doses safely and effectively. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all. But all they needed was the initial studies that said that um, it was 90% effective or whatever. Some, I, I, now I'm reading the Moderna and the Pfizer books. 95%, um, 96%, whatever, effective in preventing death or serious disease um, in like, you know, a very small number, you know, because they had lots of patients getting it, but only a few patients actually got sick or died, okay? So the number to treat, the number of people you needed to give a vaccine to in order to prevent one or two deaths was huge. Doesn't matter. They can still say that it's 95% effective at preventing death. And then they can stop the trials. So no long-term safety follow-ups, um, no long-term efficacy follow-ups, no nothing. So even though we know that after a few months it w the efficacy waned and possibly reversed, it didn't matter because those vaccines were already successful. And it means that the mRNA platform that they were so excited about works. It works. I'm not saying that it works. I'm saying that they have proven that it works because they produced something that didn't kill everybody right away and it they were able to show short-term that it prevented some deaths that it prevented deaths to a certain percentage without any follow-up. So we know after the follow-up how it turned out, mm -hmm. right? Um, but based on that success, Moderna and BioNTech now have dozens of mRNA vaccine trials going on, which I think is just astonishing. Mm -hmm. So this is where the pandemic industrial complex, as you describe it, which is you know various agencies and also, of course, industry basically working together closely comes in.
Yes. Right. Um, so maybe just briefly, as we finish up, just kind of explain to me what what that means, and uh, and I guess you know where is this complex today in terms of its. That's a good question develop. because that kind of brings us back to that original concept that I had, and where it ended up. So like the propaganda, the profits, um, and the politics all went together into the into this um, pandemic industrial complex. And I'll also add that it's international. Mm. Uh, my research hasn't been able to catch up, to do, to cover all the different countries. But so where where is it now? Um, I think what's happening now is that they have already baked in the, because so many people are getting so much out of it, right? So You the, mean financially or? Both financially and also in terms of validation. So I think that the um, biodefense uh, efforts that so many billions and billions of dollars were poured into is validated or vindicated. And I'm putting all of this in quotes because I don't think it's true, but I think that they could say that it was to themselves um, by the success of the vaccines. So I actually think that where they are now is, first of all, there's all the money Right, so there's all the profits for the pharmaceutical industry, and also for the NGOs like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that invested huge amounts of money in the vaccine effort and in the vaccine development, and even the government agencies that are involved have patents and have um, mechanisms by which they derive profits from the vaccines. So a lot of it is money. I'm not going to say it's not, but I think a lot of it is also. Um, this kind of hubris and um, lack of scientific rigor because they really, really wanted it to work. Mm -hmm. And so where we are now is that they've baked it in to the national pandemic preparedness plan that Biden um, just put out in uh, 2021 or 2022. And in that pandemic preparedness plan, it's really interesting because it says, this is the first time that we have combined our response um, in a biodefense and a public health sense. So they kind of admitted, and this is just on the website where they talk about it, um, that at one point we had the public health responses and the biodefense response and they were separate. Now they're the same. Mm -hmm. To me, it's scary. Oh, absolutely fascinating. Um, any final thoughts as we finish, Debbie? Thank you for letting me uh, describe my research and my findings. Um, I'm just really hoping that uh, people, I think it's really important for people to understand this and not on a theoretical level, but on a very practical level. Because what I think is that all of the things that we did, the masking, the distancing, um, the quarantining, none of that was a public health response. All of the things that they said that you thought were for your public health were actually done so that you would be scared and so that you would stay home and so that you would comply with the plan of quarantine until vaccine, which is a national security plan. It's not a public health plan. And so my, my deepest desire and the reason that I'm doing all of this is so that people never <laughs> agree to do it again. So here's the thing that concerns me, okay? 
there's a, been a profound break in trust with our agencies and our responses, right, through all this. And there may be a need for a proper biodefense national security response in the future. And so how do we deal with that given what we know now? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I think the risk of a, bio of a bio terror attack or a bioweapons attack is much smaller than people think. I think that even if it were to happen, um, we would still have to respond in a way that makes sense. And now that we know, and I hope that we know, that masks don't work, they just don't. I mean, like, they just physically don't work. It doesn't matter if it's a bioweapon or if it's the flu. If it's a respiratory virus, it doesn't work. Um, we know that testing and quarantining doesn't work unless it's a virus like Ebola that you can actually trace each case, right, and quarantine. So we need to learn, even if we have to respond, even if we have to have a response to a bio weapons attack, that none of the things that we did are appropriate, whether it was an engineered virus or whether it was a virus that developed in nature. And so what we need to do is we need to say, let's go back to the drawing board, to all the plans that we had before for public health, because even if it's a bioweapon, it's still affecting your body and your health, right? It's not a gun, it's not a grenade, and you can't protect yourself from it in any way other than how you would protect yourself from any virus, right? Whether it was engineered or not, luckily, and this is actually a good thing, um, viruses that are very aggressive and that kill people really fast don't tend to spread very fast because once they kill their host, it's over. The viruses that spread the fastest and that they infect the most people are the viruses that let their host live and let their host interact with a lot of other people. So viruses tend to be either very deadly or very transmissible. Um, so even if there was a bioweapons attack, and now I'm saying this only out of my general knowledge of viruses, not out of what I know of, you know, of I don't know what a potential bioweapon would be. So far in the history of humanity and viruses, we have not encountered a virus that spreads as fast as SARS-CoV-2 and kills as much as, as Ebola. People would like to develop it. I don't think they're going to be able to. And I think that if we are attacked by a bioweapon that we know is a bioweapon, and again, SARS-CoV-2 could have been a bioweapon, but it wasn't a very effective one because it didn't kill very many people. Um, even if we are attacked by a bioweapon, we still have to respond in a public health way because it's still affecting our health and it's still a virus. And a public health response, no matter what it is, no matter who made it, no matter what their intent was, is to keep everybody calm, make sure that the most vulnerable people are protected, and let everybody else live their life. Well, Debbie Lerman, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining Debbie Lerman and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.